we are finishing a series this weekend called Letters from a Friend. And what we've done in this series is we have looked at three of the smaller letters that are in our New Testament. And really, if you look at those letters, they are letters from a friend to a friend. And so two weeks ago, we looked at the letter Philemon. Um, I'm not sure how many of you have ever heard a sermon preached on the letter Philemon. And I would guess that most of you have never heard a sermon on Philemon with puppets. And so just trying to do what we can there. And then last week, we looked at John's second letter, which we found was really just it's a powerful letter, but we often don't look at it because of that two that's in front of John's name. And then this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at, at John's third letter. And, and this is the shortest letter in the New Testament, that in the original language, that this letter is about 219 words. But what we'll find that what it might lack in length it makes up for empower, that it's a very proverbial letter, and you'll find there'll be all kinds of things. But as I was thinking just about how short it is, I, I started thinking about just powerful things that have been communicated in brevity. So I think of like Martin Luther King Jr. That one of the things that he is well known for is his quotes, right? And there's something about his ability to say something with a few words that reverberates through history and through time that we can talk about. I found this quote that just I thought was really good. He says, he says, the ultimate tragedy is not the oppression and cruelty by bad people, but the silence over that by good people. I mean, what a powerful sentence right there, right? Like you could write a master's thesis on that. But even if you think of like great speeches in American history, you probably think of the, the Gettysburg Address, that the Gettysburg Address was 272 words. The most people believe that when Abraham Lincoln got up to deliver the Gettysburg Address, that he did so in under three minutes. Yet if we were to think about famous American speeches, I don't know that they're, they're any more famous than the Gettysburg Address, but it was, it was short. Even if you think about great characters in movies, that they're really good at like saying a few things. Right? If you go to Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 1, who's the best character? It's Groot. He never says more than three words at a time. I am Groot, I am Groot, I am Groot, we are Groot. Like, that's his thing, and we all love him for it, right? And so as we look at this letter that John has written, that he says so much in so few words, but if we're going to just to kind of keep it unified, I'd like to unify it under the 11th verse in the letter. And this is, this is it. This is 1 John chapter 1, or 3 John chapter 1, verse 11. And he says this. He says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. So everything we're going to talk about is either a picture of what it looks like to imitate what is good, or a picture of what it looks like to imitate what is evil. And so let's just dive in here. 3 John chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. The elder. That's how John refers to himself. He refers to himself as the elder because he's an elder. To the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. 
For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That this is how he starts it off. And I just want to draw your attention to a few things here. Okay, first off, you see that word beloved. Okay, so we don't know a lot about Gaius. That church history doesn't have a lot about him, but here's what we do know based on this letter. We know that he pastored a church, and we know that he was close friends with John. That that word there, beloved, it actually shows up three times in this letter. So three of the 219 words that he uses are the word beloved. And what that is, that is a word that is meant to encourage Gaius to know, hey, we were close. That's that's John's way of reminding him of their friendship. That it's John. He is drawing attention to the intimacy that is in their relationship, which I find incredibly interesting when you think of people like John. Because if there's anybody in the world who does not need friends, you would think it would be John. That, That he is a guy who watched Jesus do most of his miracles, that John was one of the 12, that he's able to refer to himself simply as the elder, that if there is a person who could say, you know what, I don't need people in my life, it would be John. But here we see in this letter, based on that word beloved, that John is a man who has close friends. And here's what that does to us, is it makes us ask the question, okay, if John, if John needed close friends, that if he needed people in his life to help him know Jesus better, and if he had people in his life that he's helping know Jesus better, if he needed that, how much more do we need that? Now, we live in this society where we have this veneer of connectivity, right? Where we have hundreds of relationships that are maybe an inch deep and a mile wide. But here in that word, beloved, you see an intimacy there that doesn't come on social media. That John is talking about someone that he cares deeply about. And it really forces us to look at our relationships and say, do we have people like this in our lives? And if we don't, then it doesn't matter who you are. That if John thought this was important, you have no room to make that excuse, but you've got to figure out a way to press in. But this is why at the church we make things like growth track and connect groups and serving so important because as a church, we want to empower you so that you can make greater connections with other people because we just know the value in this. That the Christian life was never never meant to be one done in isolation, but that it was always meant to be one surrounded by people who can help you know Jesus better and who you can help. So we see that three times he says, hey, we're close. Beloved, we are, we have, there's intimacy there. And then, then you see that, that line there, I draw your attention, that you may be in good health. And that's, you got to be careful with verses like that today because, let's be honest, thanks to like 
social media and like we, there's a lot of people who we know they care about health and we wish they would quit telling us they care about health, right? It's like we get it, man. Your wad is tough. Okay, I understand. But like, but still, like we live in this day where it's like it's health, very health conscious, very important. But 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 you got to be careful because it also says that as it goes well with your soul. So what our society will do is we'll say, you know, I care a lot about the body, but I'm going to neglect the soul. Now, in John's day, what he's addressing is he's addressing the opposite. That there was a group of people, they were called Gnostics, and what they did is they cared a lot about the soul, but they didn't see any value in the body. This is a group of people who, who they didn't believe that Jesus came in a physical form, but they, meant he, they believed that he was just spiritual and only God. And so even John saying that line about good health, a lot of commentators believe that what John is doing is he's taking a shot at the Gnostics just to say, no, your body matters. But in that line, good health and that it's well with your soul, you see that, that contrary to our society that might only care about the body and contrary to John's society where they only care about the soul, that if we are people who are going to it, it, imitate what is good, then we're going to figure out a way to care about both. And what a lot of people do, though, is they'll say, well, I have my, my church life, and it's my spiritual health, and that matters, and then, you know what, what, what does it matter about my physical body? And I can tell you that it matters enough that John was willing to put that line in there, that your health matters. And even if you think about it on, I mean, who gave you your body? God gave you your body. And if he gave you this thing for free, shouldn't you say, okay, well, what is it that I can do to take care of it better? But we like to make those distinctions, but if we're going to imitate what is good, we're going to figure out a way to care about both. And then you have that paternal line there at the end where he says this, and he says, indeed, talking to Gaius, he's saying, you are walking in the truth. And he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And I'm sure that most of us parents can probably agree to that. It's kind of nice, right? But there's something about when your kids do the right thing without getting prompted by you, you're like, okay, something's working here. Like we'll walk into Jack's room and it'll be like picked up and his bed's made and we're like, buddy, good job. And he always responds, so what's my reward? So like we're still working on him a little bit. But, like, we can all admit that there's something, like, there's a joy to see the people that you love and that you care about walking in the truth. But what, what John's doing here is he's talking to Gaius and he's saying, I invested in you, and I'm so glad that I did. I'm, I'm so glad that in you, Gaius, I, I see my investment pay off. And as we think about what it looks like to be a good friend, as we think about what it looks like to be a Christian, as we think about most basically what it looks like to imitate what is good, that it has a little bit to do with living your life in a way where you invest in people so that you can say 10 years from now, it's such a joy to see you walking in the truth. 
even thinking about the stuff that maybe you do here, maybe you maybe you lead a group, maybe um, maybe you serve in a classroom, maybe that you, you you help out kids in the loft, or you do stuff with our students. That that those moments of serving, that they're not just about the moment where you serve, but they're also about that moment ten years from now where you'll be able to look at their life, and you'll say, gosh. It brings me such joy to see that those things that we talked about in the loft still matter to you today. That John is saying, hey, invest your life in people. This is part of being a friend. That Gaius is someone who John has invested his life in. And he's saying, I'm going to affirm what God has done in you. And so then he keeps going in this letter, and this is what he says next. He says, Beloved, there's that word again. It is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So this is talking right here about something that's kind of maybe challenging, but he's talking about the joy of Christian giving. And, and I'll be the first to admit, joy in giving, that took me a long time to get there, okay? But I used to always joke, like, I, I always joke, like, yeah, people say it's more blessed to give than to receive. Yeah, I've never, I don't know what that means. Like, but, but this is talking about the joy that comes when you give and you invest. But here's what makes this part a little tricky. Is that John is talking about giving to something that these people will in no way reap the benefit from. So we see that phrase. It says, strangers as they are. That he is giving. He's saying, hey, you, thank you for giving to these people even though you don't know who they are and what they're doing. And that is so tough. Because even as you think about like giving here, we talk about giving every week. We receive an offering. That Part of what we talk about as we give is we talk about what your giving does. And even as you give to this place, like you still reap the benefit in some way for what you give, right? I mean, isn't it nice that the lights are on? This would be difficult if they were off. Even beyond the lights, like isn't it easier to do this in a building than it would be to do it outside? And because of people's generosity, sometimes we're able to do this in the comfort of air conditioning too, which is kind of nice. And so even as you give, and as we talk about giving, like we, you reap the benefit of your generosity as you give to this place. There are probably elements, though, where your giving goes that maybe you're not experiencing that fruit. Maybe you don't have kids. And so, but you still, as you give, your giving enables us to do great ministry to the next generation. Maybe you have kids, but you don't have teenagers. Well, here's a fun fact. They will be teenagers soon. And so, so you, but you're giving what it does. is It gives us the ability to serve that age group incredibly well. 
that we, we all benefit from these things in one way or the other. But see, that, that's not even necessarily what John's talking about here. He's talking about giving to things that you might not see or feel the benefit from. And even for us as a church, that one of the things that we do is we support missions. We support missions. And I'll be the first to admit that the, the day I took over, that was the hardest thing for me to keep on the budget. Because there's something about that where it's like, man, we don't even, like, we don't even, like there are other things that we need. But as we practice the joy of giving, we realize that we give not because of what we get. But even the question that we should ask ourselves as we give isn't, okay, what am I going to get out of this? What benefit am I going to reap? But the question that we really have to ask ourselves is, okay, well, what is it that he wants me to give? And because of our giving, even specifically with things like with missions, that we are able to do things that we might never physically be able to do. That one of the missionaries that we supported the church is named Sam, and I saw yesterday on Facebook that he just got his passport, and uh, actually he's, he's right now on a plane heading to the South Pacific island of Tana. Here's what I can tell you. I will probably never go to the South Pacific island of Tana. It's probably not going to happen. I mean, maybe if the Lord has something, I probably won't. But here's what I can know is that as he is there doing ministry, because we as a church support him, though I might never go, our generosity is enabling him to be effective in helping people know Jesus better at a place where I might never physically be able to do that. That's the power of generosity. That's, that's what he's talking about. And not only that, he's able to, to minister in a way, and, and this is what he's talking about. Notice it says there, not accepting anything from the Gentiles. Okay, so as it's talking about not accepting anything from the Gentiles, he's saying that you're, a, well, you're able to send these people so that they do ministry and they can do so without asking for money. So even the same with us, as we send Sam and Lisa to, to Tana that we are able to send them in a way so that as they do ministry, they don't say, hey, before I tell you, with, tell you about Jesus, can you give me some money for food? Like, they don't have to do that. That generosity is powerful. And sometimes we don't receive the benefit, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't. And every time I talk about generosity, I always come back to this quote from the Pilgrim's Progress. There's an ancient book, it's not really ancient, but it's an older book, and it's written by a guy named John Bunyan, and I really like this quote. He says this, he says, There was a man, some called him mad. The more he gave, the more he had. And I would guess that if you have experienced the joy of giving, that you'd say, yep, I don't know how it works, but there's something about that that's incredibly true. Because there's a joy. And John is saying, as we imitate what is good, that means we give open-handedly to things that we might not necessarily benefit from. But that is what it looks like to imitate good. And then he keeps on going, and this is where he confronts somebody. In verse 9, he says, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself, at, put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come... 
I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. A lot of people believe this is actually why John wrote this letter, was because of this situation right here. And what John is doing here is he's being a good friend. Because what a good friend will do is a good friend speaks up when they need to speak up. Here's what I can tell you about John. He's one of the 12. He's important. If he writes a letter to your church, it is going to carry authority. So if he writes this letter and says, yeah, Diotrephes, he's evil, don't do what he says, that is going to carry authority. So for a guy like Gaius, who's trying to lead this church, for him to have this type of support from John the Elder, it's powerful. That this is what, this is what friends do. That friends will, will, that will stick their neck out for their friends. They will stand up for their friends when no one else is willing to stand up. And even if you look at this letter, like, the thing I like about John is he's kind of like a badger. Like, he doesn't let it go. That if you notice, like, he wrote a letter, didn't respond. That he sent a, sent a person, didn't really respond. He sends another person, doesn't respond. And he says, here's what's going to happen. When I come, I'm going to address his wicked nonsense. That sometimes with a friend... You've got to be willing to speak up. Even as you look at what he's doing, that what this guy Diotrephes is doing is he's giving us an example of what it looks like to imitate what is evil. That it says here that, that he likes to put himself first. That, that they're drawing attention to the fact that this is a person who is proud. And, and when it comes to church, especially church leadership, what you find is you find that the higher that you climb, that the more you are going to have to fight against pride. That, that, that the more that you do in the church, the more you become aware of this reality, that what you're doing, that it's, it's not about you, but it's about those that you serve. So to imitate what is evil is to make ministry all about you. And then not only was he, he proud, but it says also here that he was slandering the people who were in leadership over him. That line there about wicked nonsense. That it's, it's one thing. In your life, you will find people who disagree. Like, you will have leaders over you, and you won't agree with the decisions that they make. And it's one thing to disagree. It's something completely different to slander those people who are over you in authority. It's fine to disagree, but when you start trying to cut out the influence and authority of those other people, what you'll find is you'll find that you are doing something, you are imitating what is evil. And so John says, I am going to stand up for my friend. And then the text pivots, and let me show you this here in verse 11. In verse, verse 11, he says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Now, the reason why I say this is pivoting is he's saying, okay, do not imitate evil. That is a picture of diatrophies. He's saying, don't, don't be like that guy. Don't imitate him. Do not follow his example, but imitate what is good, and let me show you what that looks like. 
And he says, whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. And from the truth, is, the truth itself. And we also add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. So he's saying, hey, I am sending this guy to you. You can trust him. That you can imitate his life. That he does what is good and you would be wise to follow his example. And in the church, we have a word for that. It's discipleship. That discipleship, part of it, is finding people who are further along in the journey than you are, getting as close to them as you possibly can, and learning from their life. And if you really think about it, I mean, isn't that what Jesus did? For three years, he found 12 guys, and they followed him around everywhere he went. And because of his influence in their life, they helped numerous people know Jesus better. That was, that was discipleship. But here, even with John, he's saying, hey, I'm going to send someone to you, and I'm going to send someone to you so that from his example, you can know Jesus better. And then even Paul, he says it this way in his first letter to the church at Corinth, in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So what this does is it forces us to look at our circles and say, are there people in my life who help me know Jesus better? Are there people in my life who are maybe a little bit further along than me, who can help me grow into the person that God's called me to be. It also forces us to look at our lives and say, are there people in my life who I can take under my wing? Are there people who can learn from me? And while it might feel arrogant to ask that type of question, I'm telling you that it's not. That this is the, the call of every Christian, that we would help people know Jesus better. That Jesus said, in Matthew 20, he says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. And so that is on us then to look at what we're doing and say, okay, who, who are we putting in our world that we can help bring along? And then this is how the letter ends. He said, I had much to write you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. That in these 219 words, we see what a picture of friendship looks like. And what this picture of friendship does is it forces us to, to look at us as friends. I mean, think of, think of this letter. That John, he goes out of his way to encourage this guy. But at the very beginning, he calls him beloved, and he does it three times. That, that he points out how proud he is to see that this guy is walking in the truth. 
He's saying, I'm so glad that I invested in you. But not only that, but he draws attention to the fact that, hey, I'm so encouraged by your generosity. He, he, he even like sends someone to help him. And then he finishes his letter by saying, and by the way, the friends, other people with me, they greet you. So as you think about the people in your life who you love, as you think about the people in your life who you appreciate, as you think about the people in your life who have made you who you are and brought you to this place, here's the question you got to ask yourself. When is the last time you told them that? When is the last time you used your words to tell people who have helped you how much you appreciate them? Because we see in 219 words, John does it at least five times with this guy. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, but I, I would do that. But like they already know. They don't know unless you say. And to be a good friend is to look for opportunities to encourage. We also see that what a good friend does here is a good friend is willing to stand up for their friend. And so maybe you're one of those people who's kind of sheepish. And, and you've got to ask yourself, do you stand up for your friends? Or do you wait and then tell them afterwards you have their back? Can you think of situations where you probably should have let them know that they had, you had their back, but you didn't? That this is something that John did here. And then it makes us look at our lives and say, are, we, are our friendships doing something? That do we have relationships that are helping point people to Jesus? And do I have a relationship with someone who's helping me know Jesus better? That in 219 words, John forces us to ask ourselves those types of questions. And if God is speaking to your heart, revealing things that you need to do, you would be incredibly wise to submit to the tug. Because to imitate what is good, it looks like being a good friend. Let's pray. Thank you for watching our services. If you have questions or you would like more information, you can visit us online at nlspringfield.com. We'd also love to have you join us at one of our Sunday morning services. We have programs at 9.30 and 11 for adults, students, and kids. We hope to see you there.